Well, the key is we didn't have altars in our churches. We we didn't call it an altar, I can tell you. We that. had tables. Altars are for sacrifices. So why are the early church fathers talking about altars? Hello, and welcome to another often imitated, never duplicated episode of On the Journey. That's true. Swain. That's true right there. Ken Hensley, my colleague. Glad to have you along. Ken, how you doing? Good to see you. It's been a little while. It has been a little while, but fortunately, we've got a new series to get to today. I'm going to talk about that here in just a second. If you don't know about On the Journey, we are a production of the Coming Home Network. Please do come visit us at chnetwork.org. Uh, we are a resource for all kinds of people who are at various stages of interest in the Catholic faith. Some of them are like Ken and I, who came from Baptist or Wesleyan mm -hmm. backgrounds and became Catholic. Some people are just kind of curious, have a lot of questions, uh, a lot of misconceptions. So we are here for you. Visit us at chnetwork.org. Also go back and watch old episodes of On the Journey and subscribe to our YouTube channel if you feel so led. Ken, Amen. I'm really pumped about this new series. Uh, set it up for us. Well, first of all, I'm climbing out of the COVID-19 pit, which I tested positive for a few weeks ago and was pretty weak, but now I feel great. And so I'm actually really excited to be back with you and recording. Yeah, um, you know, on the journey, I just want to remind our, our viewers, I guess, that, that what on the journey is all about, in my mind, is, um, is that this is where we want to attempt to explain uh, primarily to our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, Protestant ministers, um, why we um, wound up in the Catholic Church. That's basically it. Um, you and I have covered a lot of stuff already. Um, we've spent some months looking at two of the most foundational issues that arose at the time of the Protestant Reformation, that is sola scriptura, scripture alone, and sola fide, justification by faith alone, and what, what I want to do now is spend some weeks focused on the Catholic teaching on the Eucharist. And so from my perspective, yours as a Methodist would be a little bit different. Mine is a Baptist pastor. Um, and the questions will be, you know, what did I believe when I was a Baptist pastor about what I referred to then as the Lord's Supper? And how in the world did I come to embrace from that the holy sacrifice of the Catholic Mass? Which I would have thought, and you would have thought, was completely ludicrous from a theological and practical standpoint. I came yeah. from more of a low Methodist uh, to Nazarene to even lower kind of mm -hmm. Methodist to uh, I fell in with some Restorationists in a house, house church. But comparing notes, um, kind of throughout a, a, all of those transitions, I would have mm -hmm. held kind of a similar understanding of the Lord's Supper and everything else as you're about to articulate in your own life, and I can guarantee you this, I don't think I was, I must have been in college, maybe beyond, before I heard the word Eucharist for the first time. Yeah. So that's where yeah, I'm coming from. Yeah. You made me think, I think that you and I, ecclesiologically, you and I both have friends in low places. <laughs> right, right. Some, actually, my friends are the ones who have a friend in a low place, being me, but 
Okay, let me start from my perspective as a Baptist then. From the time really that I came to personal faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 22, what I was taught uh, about the Lord's Supper was that it was a simple meal by which we use the symbols of bread and wine, more often, to be honest, crackers and grape juice, to commemorate the death of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. It was really just that simple. Jesus had said, do this in remembrance of me, and that was etched into my, my soul. St. Paul had written, quoting from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And really, um, Matt, in the thinking of virtually every Christian I knew, this was just, this is pretty much the sum of it. The Lord's Supper was a time of remembrance, a time of calling to mind what our Lord had suffered for us. It was a time for giving thanks to him for that. It was a time of recommitting our lives to him. And it was a time of proclaiming his death through the sacred use of, again, crackers and grape juice through these sacred actions. That is what the Lord's Supper was. How often you do it? Well, in our church, it was uh, once a month, although I knew churches that um, celebrated the Lord's Supper quarterly, and some even um, more distant than that. Or more I so. mean, I, I wish I could go back and, and remember and maybe find some old church bulletins or, or something like mm -hmm. that. I mean, it seems to me like it was once a quarter and sometimes. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they were, I don't think I ever noticed any kind of regularity to when or how we did it. Um, I mean, I knew for a fact we did, you know, in one of my churches, uh, potlucks on the second Sunday of every right. month, but I couldn't tell you when we did the Lord's Supper. Well, I was a know. pastor, so I knew the schedule, and in our church it was once a month. But but yeah, there, there are people all over the map on that. There are some evangelical churches where you could go for a year and uh, and not find the Lord's Supper celebrated or find it to celebrate it at some odd time. Um, yeah, I certainly never grew up thinking it was essential mm -hmm. to Christian worship. I thought it was a very solemn aspect. Yeah. Uh, of worship that you could include, but I never thought that it was something that was essential to Christian worship. Well, th that that's the basic view that I had. Now, I, I want to step forward a little bit. At some point along the way, as I began to read the works of John Calvin, his Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, I was intrigued by some of the things that he said that went beyond how I understood things. Calvin spoke of the Lord's Supper as being a means of grace, which was a new idea for me, really, as a Baptist. He spoke of it as being a time when Christ was not merely remembered and proclaimed, but where Christ was received, in some sense, as spiritual food. In fact, Calvin spoke of how in communion we feast, he used that word, we feast upon Christ, our Passover lamb. Let me read from Calvin just briefly. Now, Christ is the only food for our soul, and therefore our Heavenly Father invites us to Christ, that refreshed by partaking of him, Refreshed by partaking of him, we may repeatedly gather strength until we shall have reached heavenly immortality. Now, of course, Calvin was very eager to emphasize that what he was speaking of was a spiritual feasting or a spiritual partaking, um, and not anything like what Catholics believe. And here's the thing, I was intrigued by what Calvin said, but I was very strongly a sola scriptura man. And while I knew Matt, that there were a number of passages in the Bible that might, and, and I emphasize might, support such a notion of feasting or partaking or being a means of grace. I really didn't think that Calvin's view could be established with any degree of certainty from the date of the New Testament alone. And so I was happy to stick with a basic Baptist evangelical understanding 
of the Lord's Supper, as expressed, for instance, in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith of 1833, which speaks of, and I quote now, the Lord's Supper, in which the members of the church, by the sacred use of bread and wine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self-examination. Now, was that pretty much your view as a low Methodist? That sounds, that sounds pretty much, I mean, it wasn't explained uh, to me in any way that I recall, other than, you know, Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him, and so we want to, you know, use this as a time to reflect on who he is and what mm-hmm. he's done for us, and, you know, you don't just take this irreverently or callously. There should be some sort yes. of examination. There wasn't any sense that the elements themselves uh, were yeah. transmitters of grace or, or anything like that. Um, and if there, again, if there was, I missed that. It went right over my head because that wasn't the common understanding and it wasn't expressed uh, strongly mm-hmm, enough mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. that to have made an impact on me. And I was paying pretty close attention yeah. to a lot of other stuff. And, and, you know, said, I would so. say about the same thing, I think pretty much on the same level. Okay, now here's where my story moves forward a couple of notches, <laughs> powerful notches. As I've mentioned before in other episodes, about eight years into my pastoral ministry um, as a Baptist pastor, I learned that an old acquaintance from my seminary time had become Catholic. I sat down and I listened to his recorded conversion story. And Matt, I still remember, that distinctly, I still remember feeling physically ill near the end of his conversion story when he spoke of his joy in receiving Christ now as a Catholic and receiving Christ in the Eucharist, he said, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And and I remember physically wincing when I heard those words. I mean, I I knew, you know, to some degree, I knew that Catholics held to a doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I knew that the Eastern churches did as well, Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Catholic, the Coptic churches, I knew the Anglican church, at least on paper, held to such a view, and even Lutherans. But it was so foreign to me. It was just so foreign to me that it actually sounded some kind of sickening. Yeah, I, I remember uh, hearing similar things. You know, I, I think I remember hearing uh, in a Christian theology class in college uh, when it was sort mm-hmm. of articulated, and I hadn't really art- heard articulated the different views on on these things. And it was, it was not something we spent a whole lot of time on, but mm-hmm. I remember you know, the, the impression I got being like, well, consubstantiation means that they believe that Jesus is there and the bread and wine are there. And then there's transubstantiation, which is obviously crazy, uh, but that's what's certain. Yeah. And you're learning it as a, you know, intellectual exercise. But I guess what I'm saying is when I heard someone affirm it as something that they had joy in, and I really heard the words for the first time, receiving Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, you know, my thought was- It's a little jarring, right? Yeah. I mean, it's Yeah, it was. Okay, you mean like into your heart as your Lord and Savior, <laughs> right? I mean, I it's know. like this is these is that's the kind of language yeah. when I talked about receiving Christ. That's the kind of language I was comfortable with. Yeah, and then he said something though that really intrigued me, and this is where the story kind of begins for me. He said that the Catholic view of the Eucharist that he had come to embrace now as a sacrificial meal in which bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ and are received in communion as supernatural food, he said that this had been the faith of Christianity from the beginning. And we talked about this when we dealt with them a few weeks on the subject of baptism. And, you know, this is a pattern that kind of repeated itself for me in many different different ways. But here's where I was jarred with that challenge. 
of him saying, this had been the faith of the Christian church from the beginning. And so as I became intrigued and interested and wanted to study Catholicism really for the first time, one of the first things that I did was I began to read the early church fathers asking the question, what did Christians in the earliest centuries after the apostles, what did they believe? What did they believe about the church? What did they believe about the Lord's Supper in this case? I mean, did they believe what I believed? And um, this is where we're moving forward to begin here, okay? So as I read, uh, point number one would be this. I found the word altar occurring on a regular basis in the writings of the earliest bishops and theologians and apologists. And this is something in itself striking. We didn't have altars in our churches. I don't think you had altars in your Methodist church, did you? We certainly did not. We drug out a communion table when it was time to do communion. Um, but uh, uh, elsewhere, that was off to the side or in the back. So your table somewhere. wasn't even there all the time. It had to be brought out. Well, depending on where we were, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of think that's true of us, although I'd, I'd forgotten it. But we had tables. It said this do in remembrance of me across the front yeah. of it and, you know, had like a little tablecloth. And sometimes it came out and sometimes it wasn't there. Well, the key is we didn't have altars in our churches. We, we didn't call it an altar, I can tell you. We that. had tables. Altars are for sacrifices. So why are the early church fathers talking about altars? I picked up J.N.D. Kelly's classic work, Early Christian Doctrines, very famous early church historian, and I found him speaking of this whole idea as though there was really no dispute about it, no controversy. Listen to what J.N.D. Kelly said. The Eucharist was regarded as the distinctively Christian sacrifice from the closing decade of the first century, if not earlier. Malachi's prediction that the Lord would reject the Jewish sacrifices and instead would have a pure offering made to him by the Gentiles in every place was seized upon by Christians as a prophecy of the Eucharist. The Didache, so he's referring now to one of the earliest writings, post-apostolic, the Didache indeed actually applies the term thusia, the Greek term for sacrifice, to the Eucharist. And the idea is presupposed by Clement, he's talking about the writings of Clement of Rome, in the parallel he discovers between the church's ministers and the Old Testament priests and Levites. Ignatius's reference to one altar, just as there is one bishop, reveals that he too thought in sacrificial terms. And then he goes on to Justin Martyr from the second century, speaks of, quote, all the sacrifices in this name which Jesus appointed to be performed in the Eucharist of the bread and the cup and which are celebrated in every place by Christians. In other words, in the early church, the Eucharist was conceived in sacrificial terms. And J.D. Kelly speaks about this. He refers to all these resources as though there's really no debate. There's no way of escaping it. And, well, well, you know, Matt, a completely different conception than I had as an evangelical. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, by the way, um, just hinting at that, that point that you're making about, uh, as Kelly is referring to, Malachi's prediction that the Lord would reject the Jewish sacrifices, and instead we have a pure mm -hmm. offering made to him by the Gentiles in every place. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if you read through the Fathers, you see that passage from Malachi, the, the, the perfect sacrifice, uh, referred to actually fairly often. And there's a great little book I recommend to our viewers uh, that just came out a, a year or two ago uh, by Mike Aquilina called The Eucharist Foretold, and it's su the subtitle is something about the lost prophecy hmm. of Malachi. This passage that we don't often yeah. think about in reference to the Eucharist, but that the fathers talk about in reference 
to the Eucharist all the time, that a sacrifice would be taking place all over the place and not just in Jerusalem. Yeah, very common. Okay, so, so we have altars in the early fathers. I find altars and sacrificial terminology. And I find J&D Kelly just assuming, yeah, this is the way it was. This is what was believed. Okay, second was this, Matt. I could see that in the early church, the Eucharist was treated with a solemnity that went far beyond what I was used to. Now, you mentioned this a, a few minutes ago. Um, we were serious in our church in the way we celebrated the Lord's Supper. There's no doubt about it. We did spend time in solemn self-examination. We were serious about it. But given that we took the Lord's Supper, given what we took it to be, a simple, symbolic meal of remembrance, um, any group of believers could celebrate it. I mean, you could have a home Bible study with five or six friends and just decide, hey, let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, college students could celebrate it together in their dorm room. Um, I even uh, saw teenagers at high school camps and whatnot in a tent just, um, you know, leading out and celebrating the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, using whatever they had, bread, you know, crackers, sometimes potato chips, Coca-Cola. So there was certainly no requirement that an ordained minister be present. Definitely. That was my experience as well, uh, Ken. Uh, so, I mean, thinking about all the different ways that I received communion, um, or I would say that I mm -hmm. took communion because I don't think received was the way that, that was the verb that I, I very often heard in terms of, you know, yeah. the, the verb that the action word that you did in regard to communion, it was, it was taking communion. But, uh, you know, I remember, you know, where you'd pass away around the, the cup holder trays where it's like a big tray and yeah. it's got like all these like mini cups in it down the aisle and you take it. And, you know, the thought was, well, if you're not real serious today, then just pass the tray along, you know, or like right. the oyster crackers or what have you. Um, or, uh, you know, I also recall at a big music festival that I used to work for, a Christian music festival, we'd have communion on the Saturday afternoon and they'd have like these little to-go kits, right? That have like saran wrap on top and mm -hmm. a little cracker mm -hmm. and then aluminum foil under that. It was all kind of intact in one thing. And someone who may have been a traveling preacher, may have been an ordained mm -hmm. minister, probably was, I, I'm not sure, but it didn't seem to matter, would, you know, kind of read the passages uh, from St. Paul or from the Last Supper, and we would take it. And the next thing you know, the giant industrial trash bags would come through and pick up yeah. Yeah. the cups, right? And even yeah. at the time, I thought, this feels a little off for how reverent we were just were about this bread and juice. Oh, well. But then even, gosh, even in a house church that I was a part of, um, that mm -hmm. I sort of inadvertently helped us kind of start, uh, a lot of people there were involved in the Restorationist uh, Stone Campbellite mm -hmm. sort of Church of Christ movement. And, and what was popular among some groups then, I don't know how, how popular it still is today, is this idea of an open table where uh, someone would read the the Last Supper mm -hmm. narrative and there would be elements of juice and crackers maybe at the front of the church and they'd play a couple of songs, meditative songs, and whoever yeah, felt like go. it during that time could go up and go up and receive. But there was never this sense that you have to have a specifically ordained person no, yeah. to be able to, to, to start. Yeah, and I guess song. what I want to emphasize is that we did take it seriously. I remember that for sure. We we took this to be serious. On the other hand, what I found as I began to read the early church fathers again was just an entirely different level, an entirely different conception. I began reading the letters of St. Ignatius, the bishop of the church in Antioch, and a personal disciple of John the Apostle. Okay, Now, late in his life, and we're talking around 107 to 110 AD, so therefore very early still, Ignatius was condemned to death in the arena in Rome. 
and he was going to be fed alive to wild beasts, and, and, and he was. Well, on his way from Antioch and Syria to Rome, he wrote letters to seven different churches scattered throughout um, Asia Minor, uh, present-day Turkey. Many of the same churches that St. John had written to in his Apocalypse. I'm, I'm reading his letters for the first time, and I find Ignatius speaking repeatedly of the, of the unity of the church, of the need for there to be one altar, even as there is one bishop, and then insisting that the only valid Eucharist is one that is celebrated directly under the bishop's authority. And this is completely different. Listen to what he says. Let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one to whom he has entrusted it. Wherever the bishop shall appear, here let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. Again, just a totally different atmosphere than what I was used to. Or put it this way, there's no way on earth I could conceive of Ignatius just saying, oh, you high schoolers are going off to camp, you know, yeah, sure, take some bread and Coca-Cola along or, or grape juice, and if you, want to, if you want to celebrate the Lord's Supper, whenever, just do it. No, no way you could conceive of that. I mean, here he says, let that be deemed a proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or one to whom he has entrusted it. Totally different situation, totally different one. Okay, and then third, so we have altars, we have this sacrificial conception all the way through the fathers, we have this solemnity and this need that things be organized around the, the bishop and, and his authority. And then third, I, I found passage after passage where the Eucharist was described in terms that fit Catholic theology to a T, and yet terms that I, as an evangelical, would have never, ever even thought to use to describe the Eucharist. And we're going to walk through some of those now, okay? First of all, around AD 170, Athenagoras, one of the earliest Christian apologists, he wrote a book called A Plea for the Christians. And he wrote this to answer certain charges that were being hurled against the early Christians at the time. And I'm sure you've heard these before. Besides being accused of atheism, which the Christians were because they rejected the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheons, uh, besides being accused of participating in sexual orgies, believe it or not, because Christians were known to quote-unquote love one another <laughs> and to greet one another with a quote-again holy kiss, therefore they were you know involved in orgies. This is AD 170, not AD 1970. Yeah, just 170. Did I say 1970? Right. Oh, I'm just okay. trying to talk okay. about how this yeah, love was yeah, misinterpreted yeah. back then too, yeah. Ken. Okay. Well, besides being accused of atheism then and of sexual immorality of conducting orgies, the pagans accused the early Christians of practicing cannibalism. This was one of the standard um, complaints that was hurled at them or charges that were hurled at them. Why? Because it was known that in their clandestine meetings, in their secret gatherings, Christians would get together to celebrate a sacred meal. This is what was known. A meal that it was rumored um, would include eating the flesh and drinking the blood of a human being. In fact, Athenagoras mentions that the Christians were accused of celebrating Thyestean feasts, which is a reference to Greek mythology, where someone named Atreus, motivated by hatred and revenge, kills the children of his brother Thyestes and serves them to him um, for dinner without him knowing it, okay? And so the Christians are being charged with conducting 
Thyestean feasts, cannibalism in their secret gatherings. Now, of course, the charge of cannibalism we know is absurd. It was nonsense. Although I have to say, Matt, that after reading the language routinely used throughout the writings of the early church to describe the Eucharist, I could understand how some might have gotten the wrong notion. And here are some examples. In his letter to the church in Smyrna, St. Ignatius mentions a certain group that he clearly conceives of as being outside the fellowship of the Catholic Church. This is how he describes them. Quote, But consider those who are of a different opinion with respect to the grace of Christ, which has come to us, how opposed they are to the will of God. They have no regard for love, no care for the widow or the orphan or the oppressed, of the bond or of the free, of the hungry or of the thirsty. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which was offered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. Can you remember how startling this kind of language was maybe the first time you heard it yourself? Well, the first time I I heard it, it went completely over my head. Just like I didn't understand bizarre. What, the, what the the Eucharist thing was. It, there's, there's a I'll get into a little bit of this uh-huh. later, I think. But you know, as I'm reading Saint Ignatius, uh, I, I, my my impression for probably into my early twenties was, well, the early church doesn't really matter. Um, it's obvious they all fell away. Yeah, yeah. And if we really want to know yeah. what Christianity is about, we should read C.S. Lewis or Josh McDowell or somebody else like that, Philip Yancey, because you know, with the benefit of 1900 years of hindsight, they really know what Christianity is about. Mm-hmm. It didn't occur to me to think, well, uh, who was in John the Apostle's Sunday school class? <laughs> yeah. And what yeah, did he yeah. tell them? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Well, this is the first um, time that I remember hearing, at least that entered into my conscience. And the, the first time I saw in black and white on the page, the Eucharist being described as the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here it is in a letter written by a man, as you say, was in John the Apostle's Sunday school class. In fact, in the same letter, Matt, St. Ignatius refers to the Eucharist as, and I quote again, the medicine of immortality. The Eucharist for St. Ignatius was the medicine of immortality. And again, just language that I would have never thought to use. And of course, as, as you just said, I guess the bottom line could be that Ignatius had drifted already that far from the simple teaching of the New Testament about the Lord's Supper. Well, that would be one thing if Ignatius was the only person yeah, who Yeah, well, that's drifted. the problem. And he's like part of yeah. some heretical sect that believes that bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, except this is Antioch. And you got a whole bunch of yeah. letters coming up from all kinds of other places all over the world who don't have Twitter. Yes. Who are all on the same page. don't have parlor either. But um, okay, at least no, at least this much does. was clear to me. Okay, he may have been drifting. This may be evidence that he had drifted far from the cl- clear, simple teaching of the New Testament. But at least this much was clear. This early bishop, this disciple of the Apostle John, held a view of the Eucharist very, very different than what I had been taught and what I believed. Well, I read on then, and I came to St. Justin Martyr, the great second-century apologist. Justin, writing around 150 AD, he also describes the Eucharist in terms similar to those of St. Ignatius, very dissimilar to anything I would have ever had crossed my lips. Here's what Justin Martyr said. 
for not as common bread or common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ our Savior was made incarnate by the Word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured, is both the flesh and blood of that incarnated Jesus. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, what? The, the, the food that has been made into the Eucharist? Food that is made into the Eucharist by, by a Eucharistic prayer? And by the change of which? You know, he's talking about change. He's talking about a prayer. I mean, never had I heard anyone speak about the Lord's Supper as these two early witnesses were speaking. And Justin Martyr, you know, says, as we have been taught. I mean, I'm just describing what we believe as Christians, what we've been taught. I read on and I came to St. Irenaeus, the bishop of the church in Lyon, and the first great biblical theologian, really, in all of church history. Irenaeus is writing around 180 AD, and this is how he describes the Eucharist. Just as the bread from just as the bread from the earth, receiving the invocation of God, so prayer again, receiving the invocation of God is no longer common bread, but the Eucharist consisting of two things, the earthly and the heavenly. So our bodies receiving the Eucharist are no longer corruptible, but have the hope of resurrection to eternal life. Again, I mean, every single phrase in this is something that would never have crossed the lips of a Baptist pastor. Um, or really any evangelical that I was aware of. I read on and I came to Tertullian. Tertullian's writing around 210 AD, and he describes how in the Eucharist, I'm quoting now, the flesh feeds on the body and blood of Christ, that the soul likewise may be filled with God. I read on, I came to St. Cyril of Jerusalem, writing about a century later in his catechetical lectures. This is what he said, as the bread and the wine of the Eucharist before the invocation of the Trinity are simply bread and wine, after the invocation, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine, the blood of Christ. I mean, again, you have the invocation, you have the prayer, you have bread and wine that are then changed into the body and blood of Christ. These are themes that are just consistent across centuries and across geographical locations. In fact, the problem for me, Matt, the problem that I was facing right away was not was not that I found a few references that sound sort of like this scattered here and there in some of the writings of the early church fathers over the first four centuries. The problem was that it was easy to find quotations like these from virtually everyone writing in those early centuries. St. Clement of Alexandria, St. Hippolytus of Rome, Origen of Alexandria, St. Cyprian of Carthage, St. Ambrose of Milan, St. Augustine, of Hippo? Yes, at times you can find places, no issue, times in which they describe the bread and wine as being signs or symbols of Christ's body and blood. The problem is that it was clear as well that they believed that when the words of consecration were spoken over the bread and the wine, some kind of a miracle took place. Something miraculous happened and that and that what we therefore received in communion was no longer simple bread and wine but the body and blood of Christ in fact as far as i could tell matt from my reading of the early fathers and from historians like j and d kelly yaroslav pelikan and others there really was no church that is 
There is no denomination, no early Christian denomination, that believed what I believed, and that virtually all evangelicals believe about the Lord's Supper. Nothing like that. In fact, for centuries and centuries and centuries, nothing. Here my friend converts to the Catholic faith, who I never would have thought would ever become a Catholic, and I hear him say that the Catholic view of the Eucharist was the teaching of Christianity from the very beginning. So I began to read through the early church fathers to, to, to see, well, what do they say? What do they think? What is the feeling? What, is, what kinds of terms do they use? And I find them talking about altars, which we had nothing to do with in the Baptist church, talking about the Eucharist as a sacrifice, talking about it as being something so um, important, I guess, that, that it just can't be celebrated any old way. In fact, that it has to be celebrated under the auspices of a bishop or someone directly um, appointed by the bishop. And then father after father after father describing the Eucharist in terms that would never cross my mind to use about the prayer changing the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ, of us receiving this, of it being for us the medicine of immortality, um, which changes us. Um, all of this. Okay, and the questions that were running through my mind then, Matt, as at this point, were questions such as these. If the apostles taught that the Lord's Supper was a simple meal of remembrance, nothing more. In other words, if my view of, as a Baptist was true, how could the early church have gotten so far off and so quickly and so universally? Or I can ask it like this. How is it that Christian bishops and theologians and apologists scattered all over the then-known world, are speaking in such similar ways about the Eucharist. I mean, we've got saints and martyrs from Antioch and Syria all the way to the other end of the empire in Rome. Um, we've got them from Jerusalem all the way to the south of France with St. Irenaeus, from North Africa with, with, um, with, with St. Augustine to Constantinople. And so all over the, the then-known world, and they're all talking about altars and the sacrifice and the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood. How is this possible? These are the questions I'm asking myself. And then one more was this, assuming for the time being that all of this is nothing more than evidence of an early and radical departure from the simple teaching of the New Testament on this subject. Why isn't there evidence of the church having wrestled with this? That is. I thought, wouldn't we find someone in the early church? And I don't mean just someone out there in the in the boonies, but I mean some major leader, some theologian, some bishop, some some one of the of the central apologists. Wouldn't we find someone saying, "Listen, we're all, we're getting off track. This is not what the apostles taught." Instead, we have evidence of all sorts of other disputes in the early centuries of the church. Why is there no evidence of a of a major dispute on this issue? Why is everyone, again, throughout the then-known world, speaking in kind of lockstep in terms of their teaching, their belief about the Eucharist? Mm -hmm. yeah, these are the people that we trust uh, when it comes to their strong articulation and defense of the hypostatic union, for example, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Mm -hmm. These same names you just listed are the go-to names yes. if you want to talk about how, if you want to prove that Christians yeah, it always comes thought to Jesus was divine. These are the same names you go to if you want to prove the doctrine of the Trinity the before same the people, word yeah. Trinity is existing. 
These are the same people that it's the same that, people. you know that you go to to determine the canon of scripture in the end too. Yeah, canon of scripture was going to well, be the, the next thing I was going to say. But this, this is just a weird, uh, these weird are, affect. But in these there. questions I was asking, Matt. I mean, these are the same questions I was facing with respect to other issues like baptismal regeneration, um, the centrality, the, the rule of bishops within the church, and other issues as well. And what this amounted to for me was this: um, it amounted to a dawning realization that the faith of the church, for hundreds and hundreds of years following the apostles seems to have been significantly different than my faith as a modern evangelical follower of Christ. That's really it. I mean, the dawning realization that, that what St. Uh, I mean, that, John Henry Newman said was true when he said, you know, um, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. What the church believed in its earliest centuries and on and on for hundreds and hundreds of years was very different, substantially different than what I believed. And that was enough of a challenge. Now, this didn't convince me of the truth of the Catholic doctrine of the Eucharist, but what it did was make me curious. It made me really want to go back to Scripture and take another run at the subject from a biblical perspective. It made me want to read what Catholic biblical scholars, New Testament, Old Testament, biblical theologians had to say about the Eucharist and to explore the scriptural foundations for the Church's teaching on this. Um, the teaching of the early fathers on this. And I got to say, and this is my hint next week, when I did, I was really moved by how much more the Bible had to say about the subject than I had previously thought. As I was coming to the same realizations that you were coming to, and I was becoming uh, more and like lower and lower and lower all the time in my ecclesiology down to hours meeting in a, you know, a courtyard of a bombed out friary, you know, with a bunch of guys, you know, just singing songs and, you know, having a loaf of bread in the middle of the room. Uh, as I'm discovering these kinds of things, I'm thinking either these guys are reading the Bible wrong yeah, yeah or I'm them. reading the Bible wrong. And that makes me really, really uncomfortable to think about. Yeah. It, it makes I me uncomfortable, especially when I think about the fact that St. Ignatius is on his way to Rome to be eaten by wild beasts, you know, one of the first great martyrs. And the fact that he was a I disciple of John, it kind of throws the weight in his direction to where I feel like, you know what, I'm going to have to be really convinced that the Bible flatly contradicts their view. I'm going to have to be convinced that the Bible does not allow their view yeah. or I'm in trouble. And this is where we're going to go starting next week, looking at the biblical material. Well, I'm excited about where we've gone so far in only one episode of this, and we've got a lot more to talk about. Uh, perhaps some of you are having similar questions. Maybe you're like kind of where Ken and I were when we were starting to read this stuff and getting a little confused and feeling a little, well, to be honest, uneasy about what you're finding. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, some of you have gone through this journey and are past where we've already talked. We'd love to hear from you as well. Please just uh, weigh in in the comments. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel uh, for more great content. You can go back and find other episodes of On the Journey and check us out at chnetwork.org. The Coming Home Network is this community full of people <laughs> who are at varying stages of interest in the Catholic faith, uh, all helping each other along. It's a very low pressure community. Uh, no one will judge you. Uh, we have our online community that's very safe and, and uh, Ken and I are in there all yes. the time hanging out. So come hang out with us. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swaim, Ken Hensley. Thank you again. We'll talk to you next week. Good to be with you, Matt. We'll see you. Bye.